You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 4. If you are visiting with us and don't have a Bible, um, we've printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those pew Bibles and take it home with you um, that you might have God's Word in your own home. Uh, for we do believe that when it is um, hidden in our hearts, it will, as He has promised, bear much fruit. And, and none of us here today don't need God to change our lives. Um, we're all in desperate need. Well, Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse 4, and reading, I'm going to actually read all the way through verse 7, which we haven't printed, but this is God's Word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is his word. We should ask his blessing on it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you stand reigning over all creation with all power and authority. We pray that you would bring that to bear on us today as we are gathered in your name. May your grace be seen by all. May it change us so deeply. May it draw us in. Would you stir our affections so that we might delight in you? All of us have come here with a ton of baggage and brokenness, anxiety, depression, fears, health concerns, disappointments, sin again and again. All of us are in need of your saving grace. Maybe some for the first time. Maybe some afresh and anew. But all of us need it. So we pray, come with your power and authority and work in us. By your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, as you've seen, this is the time of year that we call Advent. Children, that's just an old word that means coming. This is a time that we remember the first coming of Jesus, but also as an Advent season, we look forward to His second coming, a time that we remember that we are actually living between the comings of Jesus, a time when we look back that the Son of God took on our humanity so that he could in his flesh undo everything that sin had broken but as we look forward to the time when the son of man who still reigns with that same body will come again to bring a physical new heavens and new earth it's a time that we typically acknowledge that we are playing a waiting game as well that we are waiting on him and that this is a time of year that as we wait, we also wait on Him not just to come, but to renew our strength and to give us new vision to live in between the Advents. But 
as with most of you, I have found that the time of waiting is filled with tension and pain and frustration and disappointment and fears. And in the midst of waiting, we constantly are looking for a story that will orient us. We, in the midst of times like that, and the waiting, and the suffering, and the pains, and the disappointment, we are always asking the question beyond what is happening to why. What is going on? We move from what, the events, to the what is going on, the story. We are natural born interpreters. We're always employing a grid to interpret the events that we're involved in. And we always use story to create that grid. Some have called it a meta narrative, a story above the stories, the great story that interprets all little stories. In this massively chaotic time that we live in, not just in our own individual sufferings, but as we look in the world around us, it's the last few years have been just teeming with a massive amount of upheaval. And we keep thinking we'll get back to normal soon. But the further it goes on, the longer it prevails, we just begin to settle into this must be the new normal for a while. And I think in our disorientation and loss, loss of power, loss of influence, loss of ease and comfort, we want to read the times. There's no shortage of pundits and no shortage of platforms for pundits to put themselves on. And perhaps that's part of the reason that we are so prone to various conspiracy theories. This must be the story that explains all stories. It's an insight, it's an impulse that's in all of us so that we can make sense of the world. Make sense of the going on around us. Because if we can make sense of it, then we don't have to feel as uncomfortable and disoriented as we do. But here's what I want to press us on today. That the only story that can bear the weight of being a true meta narrative the only story that can bear the kind of weight that we are asking it to bear is the story that ends up with this conclusion this is what god is doing in the world and so paul begins here in verse 4 but when the fullness of time had come when God had moved all of history towards its intended culminating fulfillment. Like, like this Advent season that we're in. All kinds of things pointing us forward to the day when Advent will culminate in Christmas Day. The arrival of the Son of God. All of history in some sense before Jesus was a great advent waiting for God to come. God orchestrating all things. And it culminated in this. In the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son. If you're going to answer any question like the Bible does. What's God's agenda in the world? It has to be rooted not just in the things that God does in the world, not just in the works of God, but if you're going to build out, if we're going to build out a story that is sufficient to carry the kind of weight, it needs to go beyond what God does to answer the question who God is. 
beyond his works, into the very essence of God. Beyond just the way God operates in the world, what we might call his attributes, into the very being of God. And this is what we typically do. We have this tendency to take a few of the attributes that we are presently enjoying about God or appreciate about God and then totalize it into a story. For instance, we might find, we might delight in the graciousness and the goodness of God. And as a result, we ignore his indignation over sin or his disciplining of those that he loves when we are caught in sin. We emphasize one or two of his attributes and diminish the others and then craft a story around it. We might think of the reign of Jesus and his present power and then craft a social agenda around it. It is typically what we want to do. But what I want to suggest today is what Paul is doing here is that he is tying God's agenda not just to what he's doing in the world, but deeper. Beyond his attributes, into his very essence, into the being of God. Because God does as he is. One of the reasons that we're camped out in the Nicene Creed is not just so that Keaton can tell us about St. Nick punching a heretic in the face, although if that was gold. One of the reasons we're camped out here is because the agenda of God, as the Nicene Creed reminds us, and as so many of the songs that Cam picked for today, remind us is God's agenda in the world is overflowing of his being as the triune God. The God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see Paul doing this in this passage. In the fullness of time, God, and here he means the Father. Typically this is what Paul, most of the New Testament writers do when they're mentioning God. They're, they're speaking of God the Father. God the Father sent forth his Son to redeem us so that we might receive adoption. And as a result of our adoption in Jesus, he's given us his spirit so that we might have a full experience of that adoption and learning to cry out, Abba, Father, in the midst of our suffering. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying this is what God is. God's doing in the world what is consistent with his being, with his essence. The ancient church father, Basel, in the 4th century, said this about about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He says, you know, when I think about God, it's like he's writing this to his brother. This is what him and his brother talked about in their spare time. He says, when I think about God, it's, like, it's almost like pulling on a chain. You pull one end of the chain and the other end moves. And so it is with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When I, when I think of the Father, the Son comes near. And when I think of the Son, the Father, and the Spirit come near. You cannot think of one without also thinking of the others at the same time. You've probably experienced this as you pray. You're like, who am I supposed to be praying to? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And the answer is yes. Because often when you, when you pray to one, you find the other one drawing near in your mind and in your heart. And that's because it's not just that there is one God. But that one God shares his being in three persons. God's agenda in the world is the gospel. To take broken, sin-cursed people and then through His Son to make them sons. That's His 
agenda, but it is the overflowing of the Trinity to create that agenda. God does in the world as he is. And so here's the question that I want to ask today after that very long introduction. Why the Son? Why did God the Father not come and be born in a small town of Bethlehem? Why, why not God the Spirit taking on our flesh? As we'll see next week, salvation is by addition, the addition of another nature to the second person of the Trinity. But why the Son? And the answer is because the Son is, as we have sung and recited, begotten of the Father. What does it mean to have a Father? Well, it means that you come from Him. What does a Father have by definition? A Son. Why do we call Him the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity? Because they proceed from each other. They share a being. Maybe we can think about it this way as, as we talk about there's only one God, one there is, as we've the language that we've used in the Nicene Creed so far is there is one, one God who has one essence. Now that's technical language. Now many of us, some of us are philosophers, most of us are not. And so you can think of the answer to this question, what, what do we mean by essence? Well, just think of an essence as a what. What makes something what it is? You might ask the question, what is a cat? Well, whatever the answer is, and no one is quite sure what a cat is, it is distinctly a different what than what a dog is. A dog is a different what because it has a different essence. They are essentially different in the world. Perhaps the what that distinguishes from cats and dogs, as some have said, they have share common properties. There are some similarities. They have tails. They have, they have mouths. They have feet. They tend to be furry. They both are domesticated. They are different, though. They, so they share similarities. Their essence is different. Perhaps you can say that the essence of a dog is that a dog thinks the world revolves around you, while a cat is quite certain that it revolves around him. There's two distinct what's when you talk about the essence of cats and dogs. So when we say that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, we're saying that there is only one what, but three who's. Three distinct persons. How can that be? Well, that's because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are constantly sharing the essence of their being amongst themselves. Yes, we always have difficulty illustrating the Trinity. Often, um, we, we always have to illustrate the Trinity by what it's not. In fact, if someone says to you the Trinity is like, you can just count on the fact that the next thing that's coming down the pike is probably a heresy. Don't punch them in the face. And there's just no analogy for this interlife of God as they share their essence above each other. So we have to go negative. In fact, maybe some of you have heard, you know, the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit is like, again, whenever you hear that, you can assume that a heresy is coming, that it's like water. It can exist in three forms, ice, vapor, and liquid. Well, that's an ancient heresy called modalism. So typically we have to explain how 
the, in, the persons within the Trinity relate to each other by negation, by a negative. It's, like, it's not like this. And so let me tell you what it's not like to help illustrate this. If I were to put three people up here, you would have three who's, but you'd also have three what's. They would have a similar, whatever it is that is a human being, whatever that is, you would have three separate human beings. You'd have three what's and three who's. They would have similar essences, but not the same. They would share many things in common, but what they wouldn't share is the essence of their being. Similar, but not the same. Even if you put two twins up here, identical twins, who shared DNA, you can count on the fact that almost every part of their material being, their physical bodies, every aspect of them is so similar that it's very difficult to tell them apart, even down to the level of the DNA. Even when they share that, you will soon see that they share, they have distinct personalities. Because though they share a lot in common, they are two distinct beings. And will go out in the world and operate distinctly on their own. But God, on the other hand, shares one essence. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One what? Three who's eternally existing. And it's, it's these relations, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is what makes them distinct from each other. The Father is a Father because He sends out His being and sharing it with the Son. He begets is the language that we use. Now, you might be wondering what we mean by beget, and we'll get to that. But to tie us back a little bit more and why this is so important to the mission of what God's doing in the world, we have to go back to Jesus' words in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Philip, who was one of Jesus' disciples, comes to Jesus and he says to him, show him, Lord, show us the Father. And you can see Jesus going, wait, what? How long have I been with you, he says to Philip. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, I don't say on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We are so completely separate that it is impossible for you to think of him as a separate being that I can show you he is in me and I am in him and he and the Father so deeply share their being, their essence, that they live in inseparable, mutual dependence. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That tells us something about ourselves. We need to reason at times down from ourselves, from God to ourselves. That tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? That the greatest joy, one of the things it tells us about how to live in this world, the greatest joy is not found in rugged individualism, but mutual interdependence. Where Jesus can say, it's my food to do my Father's will. Why does he say that? Because he comes from the Father. That's what a son does. The son that proceeds from the Father says, it's my greatest joy to do my Father's will. But we want to say it's my greatest joy to do what my own heart wants to do. And then we find ourselves miserable and locked in a prison of our own doing. 
our interdependence, our need for each other is a feature. It's not a bug. We're like Legos. We are much stronger when we're put together. I mean, children, how many times do you say to your dad or your mom, can you get these apart? I can't. That's how God, who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, sharing in mutual interdependence, their very being has designed us to be. We need each other in locked in interdependence, self-sufficiency, where I learn to try to live, me and my family, I, whatever, I'm not going to share my needs. We're going to try to live independent of others. You will die under that regime because you are not sufficient. The irony of deep community is the way to find deep community is by making our needs known to each other. It's the very thing that we avoid the most, isn't it? And then we wonder, why am I so lonely? Why can I not find community? Have you made your desperation known to others that they might take of their abundance and share it with you and then for our lives are locked together? Well, we went down, we need to back up again. Because the relationship between the father and the son is not just a relationship of mutual indwelling, of interdependence, of sharing the very essence of their beings, but it's a particular kind of relationship where the father begets the son. Now, if you've got your Bibles, this is a good time to turn back to John chapter 1. And I love hearing you flip through your Bibles when I suggest that, or scroll down on your Bibles. That's the way I do it. I don't even carry my Bible around with me most places anymore. I, my eyes have gotten so bad that I'm like, i got to zoom it out. The kind of Bible that I need to read can't fit in my pocket, my back pocket anymore. So we're zooming and scrolling. So zoom and scroll, if you will, to John chapter 1, verse 14. This is what we read. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son. Now keep your finger on only. Only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now some of you probably memorized this from the King James. And you've read it this way. We have seen his glory, glory as the only begotten son from the father. Now the King James isn't typically the best translation. We have better manuscripts and translations today, but in this sense it's nailed it because the God the Son is not simply the only son from the father. He is the only son from the father. His uniqueness is that the father sends out his very being and sharing it with the son and thus begets the son. Now you can skip down to verse 18. Same things going on. Only there is only begotten. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is at the Father's, he has made him known. Now, begotten is not a language, it's not a word that we use very often today. I'm going to guess that apart from this morning, you probably haven't had it on your lips at all. And then when you had it on your lips, when we sang that and said it, you're like, I don't even know what that means. Well, this is how I explained it to my 10-year-old daughter. It's just simple, like begets like. An apple tree, when it sends out its fruit, it begets apples. Like begets like. An apple tree doesn't beget mounds bars. If it did, I would have a grove of them in my backyard. Like 
begets like. And the act of begetting is from the realm of procreation, is specifically as the, the seed moves into the egg. That in and of itself is the act of begetting. It's moving out. And the father shares his essence in that when he shares it, he shares it into the one who is eternally his son. And since God has no beginning and no end, when he begets the son, he is eternally begotten. That's what the Nicene Creed means when it says this. The only son of God. Begotten from the Father. When? Before all ages. Outside of time. Before God created time, this was going on. The Father and the Son were living in perpetual relationship as Father, as Son. Light, God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. Of the same essence with the Father. And so John, who just absolutely loves this idea catches it again in John chapter 3 and some of you have memorized it this way for God so loved the world that he gave again this is built into the doctrine of the trinity the God who eternally exists as father son and spirit sharing their essence is in constant move of giving and so what does that God do God so loved the world that he gave who did he give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So they answer a question, who else would it be besides God the Son? The one who proceeds from the Father as a Son. Of course, it would be Him who would raise His hand and say, Father, whatever your plan is in the world, I will execute it for you on your behalf. Because that's what a Son does. Joyfully takes up the desires of His Father and carries it out in the world more than willing to give, but to give of himself in abundance. If you ever doubt the generosity of God, which is often what we do when we're in the midst of suffering and the waiting times when things aren't going our way, when it seems like the world is chaotic, we don't just ask, what's God up to in this world? We really wonder, is God good? And the answer to that is to look even beyond his works into the very core of his being. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And look, if it took the Son of God, the one who comes from the Father, if it took not just out into the world, but eternally proceeds from the Father as the Son, if it took Him coming into the world to fix everything that's broken and make this world right, He can be the only adequate source of hope. He didn't take on human flesh simply to fix systems or governmental structures of the world or the culture around us. He came into the world to make new people by taking on our flesh. That's his agenda in the world currently. Now, these new people, us, his people, joined to him. We become salt and light to the broken systems of the world. But look, that emphasis 
of priority has to be preserved because it's rooted in the Trinity. God comes to make new people who then influence the world and leave a visible lasting difference. The moment we create a social agenda that is different from God's agenda, that's different from his very being, we've separated it all out. We make a giant mess of our own hearts. Verse 5 and 6. But God... Of Galatians chapter 4, sorry, verse 5 and 6 of Galatians chapter 4, back to our text. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and a son, then an heir through God. The order, this is who God is. This is what God is doing in the world. Therefore, live this way. That order has to be preserved in every single thought that we have. And so that John can say in John, 1 John 4, 9, and this is the love of God precedes this by saying God is love. How can you say that God is love unless he is internally in a relationship of sharing the essence of his being? God is love before he creates anything. Before he ever puts his affection on his creation, God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us. We got to taste this. We got to see what's eternally going on between the Father and the Son. It was made manifest amongst us in this, that God sent His begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And as the eternal Son of God, begotten, not made, He's the only one who could then bring us into the glory that He enjoyed as one who comes from the Father. Because not only, not only it is, you begin to see this, that the, the essence of God is to move out. To move out. The Father moves out into the Son. The Son and the, and the Father move out into the Spirit in constant dance of interdependence. And then as the Son takes up the very being of God, we would expect this. That as He takes on our flesh, it's to move out. And to bring us back into the glory that He has with the Father. And so Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, as his eternally begotten Son, so I have loved you. Now abide in that love. And we become co-heirs. With the eternally begotten Son of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not just any kind of sons, not just the legal sons of the Roman world, not just the adopted rights and privileges, the adopted rights and privileges of the Son of God. You know, a good indicator, and I'll close with this, a good indicator of the story 
that you're ordering your life around is its ability to activate either fear and anxiety or to settle you back down into peace and hope. You can know, you can know that the story that comes from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is a story that brings you back into a deep and binding relationship with you where then he says, I will bring you home. Until then, rest while you wait with confidence and joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a profound mystery it is that that you would share such the core of your being with your Father and your Spirit, but what a profound act of grace it is that you would take us as helpless sinners and bring us into that. And so now as we come to the table, take these ordinary elements and with your power, make your grace known in deeper ways to us. For we come and ask this because we're hungry and broken and needy sinners. Feed us at your table, we pray. In your name, our Savior, amen.